Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. We are resuming our series in Mark. It's been a while since last year when we stopped in the Gospel according to Mark. And we are actually now in the last week of Jesus' life. Mark 11, verse 1, begins the last week of Jesus' life with what is popularly called the triumphal entry, though it might be better called the humble entry, and um, it's far from a triumph, I guess, in a sense. And um, it's also called Palm Sunday. And so we will we'll start thinking now about Mark 11, verses 1 through 11, the last week of Jesus' life. If you have a, a handout for the notes, you can follow along here taking notes with, if you want to, if that will help you to hear God's word. Hear then the word of the Lord from Mark 11, verse 1. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a donkey there, tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it. And he will send it back here right away. So they went out and found a young donkey outside in the street, tied by a door. They untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the donkey? And they answered them just as Jesus had said. So they let them go. Then they brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their robes on it. Many people spread their robes on the road, and others spread leafy branches from the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna! He who comes in the name of the Lord is the Blessed One. The coming kingdom of our father David is blessed. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And he went into Jerusalem and into the temple complex. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our Lord Jesus who came to reign as king. We praise you, Lord, for his coming, for his incarnation, for his humility, for his bringing in the kingdom. Lord, we admit that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And so, Father, we need your help now. We're asking that you would help us. If you don't help us, Lord, I can't preach and we can't learn and listen to your glory. So like our brother Steve prayed, we do pray for blessing here, for growth, for spiritual needs to be met. And you alone are the great physician who can meet these needs. So, Father, we ask that you would do it. We trust that as we call on you, you hear us. Because we come to you in the name of Jesus. In whose name we pray now. Amen. It's possible for people to say they know God and be way off. It's possible to think you know God and really not know him at all. And that's not just possible for God in general, but Jesus in particular. One of the scariest passages in the Bible, you might know this because I say it almost every time before I read this passage, is Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, where it says, Jesus is saying at at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. On that day you will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out many demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I didn't know. I don't know you. You thought you knew me, but I don't know you. It's possible to think you know Jesus, to do miracles in his name even, to drive out demons, to prophesy or even preach a sermon from a pulpit, even preach the gospel, and not personally actually know Jesus. That's possible. That you could have missed Jesus while you lived your life saying you were living for Jesus. Even Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, after having God reveal the identity to Jesus, remember Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, or the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Even after getting that, Jesus said, my Father in heaven has revealed that to you, not flesh and blood. The very next statement Jesus says to Peter, after Peter rebukes him for predicting the cross, was, get behind me, Satan. He had Jesus wrong. He had Jesus right, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then he had Jesus completely wrong, to the point where Jesus calls him, Satan, it's possible to miss who Jesus is even going to church every Sunday and reading your Bible every day of the week. It's possible that you can actually read about Jesus and not recognize Jesus in the way that he has revealed himself. And so God gives us this passage here because he doesn't want us to miss out on recognizing who Jesus is. And you'll see by the end, it's not just an intellectual exercise to recognize who Jesus is. So here in this passage, we have the triumphal entry, Jesus beginning the last week of his life. And the main idea here, as it is in your notes, recognize the true Jesus. Recognize the true Jesus. And there's three things to recognize about Jesus if we're going to understand this passage and and God's point to us today. So let's go to point number one. Recognize Jesus's identity. If you're taking notes or filling in the blank, recognize Jesus's identity. So here's Jesus. He's going to the... He's he's telling his disciples to go into the village, go untie a donkey. Look at verse 3. He says, when someone asks you, why are you doing this? What are you supposed to say? Who needs it? The Lord needs it. So what does Jesus call himself? The Lord. And what do the disciples call him? The Lord. And what does Jesus expect those people to recognize about Jesus? That he is Lord. Now, that can just mean master. It doesn't have to mean Lord of my life. It could mean sir. But the disciples know he's more than just sir. Sir Jesus. The disciples know that he's their Lord. He's their master. After all, they've abandoned their jobs and have been following him for three years. So up until this point, the disciples might not know that he's God, very God. Maybe they don't get that yet. But they know he's the Christ, the son of the living God, which means he's the Messiah. Like David, God promised David that his son will be a son to God and God will be a father to him in in 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm chapter 2. And so they got that Jesus was the Messiah. So when they say Jesus is Lord... They know it means more than just sir. He's the Messiah. He's the master of our lives and he's telling us what to do. But Jesus is not just the Messiah. 
He's actually God Himself. And when you use the word Lord, there are allusions here. Mark knows that when he uses the word Lord, it actually refers to Jesus being God. Why do I say that? Go to Mark chapter 1. Just turn back in your pages, your Bible a few pages to the left. Mark chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. It's talking about John the Baptist here. And it's saying, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Malachi and then Isaiah, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness... Speaking of John the Baptist, and what is he saying? Prepare the way for who? The Lord. Make his path straight. Now that's a quote from Isaiah. And in Isaiah, it does not say prepare the way for the Lord. It doesn't say prepare the way for Adon, Lord. It says prepare the way for Yahweh, the name of God. So John the Baptist is preparing the way for who? For Yahweh. And who comes up after John the Baptist? Jesus. In other words, Isaiah and Mark are identifying Jesus as Yahweh, the Lord. So he's not just Sir. He's not just the Messiah. He's actually God. God himself in the flesh. Jesus is Lord. So if you're going to recognize who Jesus is, you need to recognize his identity. He is the master over your life, but he's also God, very God. The very name of God is his name. He is Yahweh. Jesus is Lord. And what does he do here? He tells his disciples something very strange. Go steal a donkey. He doesn't say the word steal because it's not stealing. But it almost sounds like steal a donkey, right? Go there, untie a donkey, and tell them that the Lord needs it. And they're like, wait, what? I'm just going to go randomly, get some car keys out of the valet parking thing, right? And just start the car and take it back? Really? That's Grand Theft Auto, right? I, I I can't steal a car... And Jesus is saying, and when they ask you, why are you taking those keys? Or why are you taking that donkey? Oh, say the Lord needs it. Oh, oh, the Lord needs it. Okay, go ahead. Take it. So maybe it was prearranged by Jesus. Maybe it was his omniscience and omnipotence and sovereignty. We're not told which which way, whether it's prearranged, humanly speaking, or miracle. It doesn't really matter at this point. The point is that the disciples had to trust that he was Lord and obey him anyways, right? They didn't know the prearrangement. They just had to trust the Lord. And so what does this mean for us as Christians? If he is Lord, if he is Messiah, if he is God, then Christian, Jesus is in control of you. Right? Jesus is Lord over you. Excuse me. We can't tame Jesus. You can't tame Jesus like he's a pet in the zoo. You you know the the famous quote from um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with C.S. Lewis where where um, they're, they're talking about Aslan, the great lion, who's the Lord. And they say, is he, a, is, he, is he safe? You know, they're talking about how great he is and how loving he is. And they say, is he safe? And the beaver says, is he safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. And what he means by that is, you can't control Jesus for your life, for your church, for your family, for your relationships. You can't control him. He is Lord. You are not. And that's a good thing, right? He will not be under our control. This also means that we're blessed because He knows what's best. And it also means that we will not be comfortable. If He's Lord and not us, He will push us and place us in situations that we don't like initially. That we're uncomfortable with and inconvenienced by. But guess what? We're not Lord. He is Lord. And because He's Lord... We 
uncomfortably and inconveniently trust Him and rejoice that He's in control even when we are not. That's good news that God is in control. And as we trust Him, we will be transformed by Him. We, we, can, we get to trust Him. We must trust Him. Following, with, following Christ is not easy, but it's necessary. And it's really your only way out. We can trust Jesus in our lack of control over Him because He came not to lord it over us, but to serve. Right? Jesus came to serve. He humbled Himself. He's God, very God. He gives up His glory in heaven to become a man, to become an embryo, and then to become born of a virgin and then live a human life. He humbles Himself. And even though He's exalted now, He still serves us, doesn't He? He still helps us. He still guides us. He still keeps us. The Lord will clear your circumstances. He'll make a way. But He won't always tell you how He's making that way. It's our job to trust His commands. Don't overthink your task with what ifs. Well, what if this? Then this is going to happen. So I can't do that. Well, what if I do this? I know you're telling me to do this, God, but if I do that, then this is going to happen. It's going to be too complicated. And we overthink with what ifs that we don't obey what He's telling us to do. The command is clear. Go get the donkey. You don't need to philosophize about it. You don't need to ask, well, what if this and have contingency plans? Just go get the donkey. Just go make disciples. Just go love your neighbor as yourself. Just go ask forgiveness when someone has been offended by you. Just go confront someone if they've sinned against you. Just do it. You don't need a reason about, well, they're going to get mad or this and that. No, just, just trust the Lord is in control. It's good that He's in control. We can obey Him. And we can trust that He's good. Just do it. Now, Jesus is controlling here his public self-revelation here, as you'll notice. A lot of people wanted him to be Messiah. They wanted him to be king. He was healing people like crazy. Just before this, we learned in John that he raised Lazarus from the dead. So there's a great frenzy now that Jesus is Lord and we want to celebrate who he is. And he's our king. Here he comes. And Jesus hides away. And he's controlling his public relations. He's a PR master here. Not in a way that he's lying, but Jesus has a mission, right? And so he doesn't want to be placed as king in the way that they misunderstand. Even earlier with the, with the apostles or the disciples in Mark chapter 8, he says, Who do people say that I am? Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Isaiah. Some say you're a prophet. Some say you're the, the Messiah. So other, people have different opinions about you. And Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus starts to tell them about a cross. I'm going to die. And I'm going to rise. But I'm going to die. And if you're going to follow me, guess what you have to do? Take up your cross and die and follow me. Jesus doesn't tell that to the crowds yet. He just tells that to his disciples. He's controlling his self-revelation here because he has a prediction to fulfill that ultimately surprises the disciples and it's going to surprise this crowd that's welcoming him on the road. He's in control. Whether it's the donkey, whether it's the crowd, whether it's getting arrested, Jesus is not merely a victim. He was victimized, but he's not merely a victim. He's the conductor orchestrating the events even as it's happening. He controls his entry to Jerusalem. He's fulfilling the, the, the Bible's command. You don't have to turn there now, but we will turn here a little bit later. Zechariah 9, verse 9. I'll read it to you. Zechariah 9, 9 says this. This is right before Matthew. Just go two books. Zechariah, Zechariah 9.9 9 says this. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. 
Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, whether it's a baby horse or a donkey, the point is, this is, this is humble, right? This is not what kings ride on. My kids ride on donkeys, right? Children ride on baby horses. You go to L.A., Griffith Park, there's three different tracks for different horses, and you have to be a certain size, and you could pay for which size horse you want your kids to ride. If I went, or if any grown man here went on the little horse, that just that's a funny picture. What are you doing on the little horse? My four-year-old rides on the little horse. You're supposed to be on the big horse. You're a grown man, right? And here's the king. It says, here is your king riding on a donkey. Humble. So who is Jesus? He's the humble one. He didn't come to lord it over, but he took on the attitude of a servant and a slave. Took on the likeness of men and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So who is Jesus? What is his identity? He is the humble king. He's coming to save. He's coming to reign, but he's humble, but he's also the king. And so what do they do? They throw cloaks on the ground, right? If you're following here in verse uh, verse 8. As Jesus rides in, many people spread their robes on the road and they spread leafy branches cut from the fields. In John, we, we learn that it's palm branches. So that's why we call it Palm Sunday. But they're, they're putting their cloaks on the ground. What does that mean, that they're putting their cloaks on the ground? This evokes the picture of kingship, of royal homage. You might not remember this story in Second Kings. Anyone doing their devotions right now in Second Kings? Second Kings chapter 9, verses 12 and 13, when Jehu is crowned king, it says, Jehu said, he talked to me, about, the prophet talked to me about this and that, and he said, this is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. And then each man, when they found out that Jehu was anointed king over Israel, each man quickly took his garment, it says, and put it under Jehu on the bare steps. So they took their garments, put it on the floor, and they blew the ram's horn and, pro- and proclaimed, Jehu is king! What do you do when you put your cloaks on the ground and have him walk on it? He's the king. It's royal homage. We are his subjects. He is the king. And so there's that imagery here. Here's the coats on the floor as Jesus is on a donkey, humbly riding in to Jerusalem. But it wasn't just cloaks on the ground. What else did they have? What were they waving and putting on the ground? Palm branches, or it says here, leafy branches. What is that referring to? That's referring to a deliverer's welcome. When someone has come to deliver them, the palm branches and the leafy branches are are signifying the deliverer's welcome. Now, a deliverer normally came on foot, but here he's riding humbly on a donkey or a a baby horse, a colt, a foal of a colt. And so here, what does this have a picture of? I don't know if you remember Solomon when he became king. You know the story? King David had two sons who wanted to be, well, Solomon became the king, but Adonijah was another son who wanted to be king. And he throws this great party and he gets a conspiracy together. And some of the leaders of Israel are celebrating Adonijah is king. And then they, they rush in and say, hey, we're going to be, we're going to be killed, Solomon and all of us, because we're not at the party. And didn't you want Solomon to be king, David, as David's on his deathbed? And David said, take the, take the, take my donkey put Solomon on it, ride him around and proclaim that he is king. And so they do that and those who missed out on it were considered treacherous, right? They were traitors and so they had to plea not guilty and, 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 and plea for mercy. But the point here is 
When Solomon became king, he was riding on a what? On a mule. Humble. The king's mule, but it was still a humble mule. Here's Jesus riding on a donkey, humbly, yet still called the king. Jesus is king. He's the Messiah. Okay, what does this mean for our church before we go to point number two? What does this mean for our church? It means, first of all, as a church family, if Jesus is king, if he's God, if he's Lord, then who should we be preoccupied with in this church? With Jesus, right? We should be about worshiping King Jesus, honoring King Jesus, submitting to King Jesus, encountering King Jesus together. Why are we a church and not individual Christians just listening to sermons at home? Because we come together to encounter Jesus together. We explain Christ to one another. We embody Christ. We are the body of Christ. And so as a church family, we embody Christ as the body of Christ to one another, building up the body in love. And then we enjoy Christ together, don't we? We sing, how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. We celebrate, enjoy the love of our Savior for us. It's marvelous. It's wonderful. And we do this together. So as a church family, we come to encounter Jesus. We pray. We're trying to be a healthy church where every visitor who comes to our church, if they come for one Sunday, there's one thing we want them to do. Encounter Jesus. Whether Christian or non-Christian, we want them to encounter King Jesus. That's the mission of our church. What about if you're not a Christian? If you're not a Christian, you're here this morning. Thank you for coming. We're grateful to God that he brought you here. It's not an accident that you came Maybe you stumbled in here or are here under the pressure of a family friend, but we're glad you're here and God brought you here. And here's what you need to understand, or here's a question for you, actually. Who do you think Jesus is? We're talking about Jesus' identity here. Recognize Jesus' identity. Who is Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? A prophet, perhaps? A good man? A good teacher? Maybe you think he's God. Jesus controls the world and he controls us as the one who reveals himself. And here's what I want you to know if you're not a Christian. Jesus defines who he is on his own terms, not on our terms. What that means is that we need to listen and not speak. Let's listen to what... I encourage you, especially as a non-Christian, to listen to what Jesus says about himself. Now, you have a choice whether to believe in him or reject him. That's on you. You could receive or reject him as king. But at least before you reject him, at least hear him out on his own terms. At least read the gospel according to Mark. Or talk to a Christian today and ask them, what is the main message about Jesus? At least understand what the Bible teaches before you reject him. That would do you very well. And that's my prayer for you. Okay, so number one, we recognize Jesus' identity. He is the humble king. Okay, If you want to put that next to your identity part in the blank, recognize Jesus' identity. Who is he? He's the humble king. Number two, Recognize Jesus' mission. Recognize Jesus' mission. This is verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10 recognize Jesus' mission. Verse 9 says this. So here's the leafy branches. He's walking down on a donkey. And what what does the crowd say in verse 9? Then he went ahead and they followed and they say, Hosanna! He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. The coming kingdom of our father David is blessed. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus came with a mission, and we need to recognize Jesus' mission. Now, we all long for a leader who will deliver on his promises, right? It is election season, after all, right? 
You guys following the presidential races on both sides? It's been quite the circus this year, to say the least. But we hear it every election cycle, not just this one. We hear it every election cycle. The candidate you choose is going to bring America back to or into utopia. Right? Perfect America is coming if you vote for me. That's what they all say. They might have different slogans for how they say it. It's all the same thing. Perfect America is going to come if you vote for me. That's, that's their message. That, that has to be their message. That's just how it's been for the last several um, cycles. And we want that, right? I mean, as Americans, if, I understand some of you are not American citizens. Uh, but if you're Christian, you know, we have a greater tie than even American citizenship. But the point here, at least for Americans, is we all want a greater, uh, more prosperous, peaceful America. We desire a greater society than we've experienced, even than what we've read about. We all want a utopia. Every human wants that. And you know, this longing is awakened through political activity. Sometimes it's awakened through daydreaming of how you wish the world would be, right? Or you discuss things with people. Or you distance yourself from others, from society, because you've been hurt by society. And so you've been so disappointed and jaded that because you have a vision of utopia and they haven't delivered, you, 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 you detach yourself because of the way the world is. But the point here is that everyone wants a leader they can trust and everyone wants a utopia. That's what we were made for. Now, the good news is that God promised to bring this utopia, didn't he? Remember, he cursed the world after Adam and Eve ate the fruit, but then in Abraham he said, I will bless you. Right? He promised a blessing to reverse the curse. And how did he do it? He, do, he does it through an exodus. So if you're taking notes, I'd like you to write down these three words for an exodus. There's three components to the exodus. Okay, Three components to an exodus when God does things. Number one is deliverance. Number two is journey. And number three is arrival. Okay, If you're following along, deliverance, journey, and arrival. Okay, Say that with me. Deliverance, journey... And arrival. Okay, so what about when they, when they busted out of Egypt? He delivered them from Egypt, right? Slavery in Egypt. They journeyed through the what? Wilderness. For how long? Forty years. That's right. And then they arrived at the promised land. Okay, deliverance, journey, arrival. But that's, not, that's just a microcosm. What about the longer, larger picture of Israel's history? Through Moses, they were delivered out of Egypt into the promised land. With Joshua, they journeyed in the promised land by defeating the enemies and securing the land with the judges. That's the journey. When did their kingdom finally arrive? With the greatest of all kings, King David, and maybe even arguably a greater king in Solomon. So you have the deliverance from Egypt, the journey into the land and controlling the land, and then you have the arrival of the kingdom with Solomon, where, it is, where they are so rich that silver were, were like pennies. You find silver on the floor... It's almost worthless. That's how prosperous. It was almost like a perfect world, a utopia. Now, you know the story. That didn't last long because Solomon had a thousand, well, 700 wives and 300 concubines. But the point here is that you had deliverance. You had journey in securing the land. And then you had an arrival of the kingdom. And then they got kicked out of the land, right? And in one sense, that was a deliverance from the cursed land that they were in because they were cursed because they kept disobeying God. So God exiles them. That's deliverance in a reverse form, but it is. He delivers them. And then they journey back to the land. And when are they going to arrive? They're going to arrive 
when God fulfills his promise of Isaiah 35. Let me read you parts of Isaiah 35. This is the promise of what's going to happen after exile. Here's the arrival. Okay, they're in exile. They come back to the promised land, end of the Old Testament. What's the arrival? When does the kingdom come? It says this in Isaiah 35. The wilderness and dry land will be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like a rose. It will blossom abundantly and will also rejoice with joy and singing. Now, here's why I'm reading this, by the way. Because when Jesus is coming in, there's a frenzy, right? Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What are the Jews thinking? They're thinking Isaiah 35. So I want you to hear these verses. This is in their mind as he's riding in the donkey into Jerusalem. It says here, the glory of Lebanon will be given to it and the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. You're discouraged in exile? Here's what it says. Strengthen the weak hands. Steady the shaking knees. Say to the cowardly, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you, Israel. He will save you. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. And didn't Jesus do that? Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. It goes on in verse 8. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for the ones who walk the path. Even the fool will not go astray in this new kingdom. There will be no lion there. No vicious beast will go on it. They will not be found there. There's no curse in this place. Sound familiar? Verse 10 of Isaiah 35. The redeemed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee. Sound familiar? Let me, let me give you a verse on the, on the New Testament side. He will wipe every tear from their what? Eyes. This sounds like Revelation 21 and 22. When they come back from exile, the kingdom will be brought, God will save them and they will be in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the kingdom. So here comes Jesus riding on donkey and what are they thinking? This is it. This is the end. We have a second coming, right? They don't have a second coming. This is the coming. Here it is. The kingdom has come. No more curse. No more enemies. Perfect joy. It's coming right now. Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And so, this is actually a microcosm of Jesus' life. Jesus is reenacting the exodus. Remember the three things? Deliverance, journey, and arrival. What does Jesus do in the first eight chapters of Mark? He's delivering them from Satan. He's delivering them from blindness, from sickness, from, from deaf ears and mute mouths. He's delivering them. And then what does he do from Mark chapter 8, verse 23 to 1052? When he withdraws from the crowd, he's journeying to where? To Jerusalem. So Jesus delivers the people. He journeys to Jerusalem. And now that he's going in the triumphal entry, what is this third part of an exodus? The what? Arrival. Here comes the king. He's bringing in the exodus that was prophesied. Salvation is coming. The kingdom is coming. And so, you can turn to Zechariah 9 if you want. Turn to Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 17. Because this is quoted, actually, I'd prefer you turn there if you can. If you can't, that's okay. You can listen. But if you go to Matthew, just go to the left. Before Matthew, you have Malachi, and then before Malachi, you have Zechariah. Look at Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 17. I want you to see here what they're expecting, the Jews. Now, maybe Mark doesn't quote Zechariah 9 here, but some of the Jews, even if they didn't have Zechariah 9 in their, in their mind of the king coming on a donkey, 
they still had the idea of the kingdom coming, because they're saying the coming kingdom of David is, is here, right? So look at Zechariah 9. We'll read the prophecy in verse 9, and I want to read to the end of the chapter. I want you to feel the hope that they feel while Jesus is writing in. Look at verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Not the foal of a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 10. So that's what we got, the prophecy, right? But look at the rest of it. Look at this. What's going to happen? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed. So you're removing all the weapons, which means there's what? He will proclaim what? Peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. World peace. Coming on a donkey, world peace. Verse 11. As for you, because of the blood of your covenant, I will release your prisoners from the waterless cistern. Return, there's the gospel, by the way, in verse 11, the blood of the covenant. Verse 11, return to a stronghold. Or 12. Return to a stronghold, you prisoners who have hope. Today I declare that I will restore double to you, for I will bend Judah as my bow. I will fill that bow with Ephraim. That's the northern kingdom. I will rouse your son, Zion, against who? Against your sons, Greece. I will make you like a warrior sword. Israel will become a weapon against Greece, the kingdom and empire at the time, or going to be. Now, who's the empire during Jesus' time? Roman Empire. They're taking it straight from there against Greece. Well, now it's against Rome. Jesus is coming to aim us like an arrow to take down who? Rome. Okay? Keep that in mind. That's what they're thinking as he's coming down on the donkey. Verse uh, verse 13, I will make you like a warrior sword. Verse 14, Yahweh will appear over them, like, and his arrow will fly like lightning. Yahweh God will sound the trumpet and advance with the southern storms. Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of the armies, will defend them. They will consume and conquer with sling stones. Sound like David, right? King David against Goliath. They will drink and be rowdy as if with wine. They will be as full as the sprinkling basin, like those at the corners of the altar. Yahweh their God will save them. There's the saving part. Will save them on that day as the flock of his people. For they are like jewels in a crown, sparkling over his land. How lovely and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men flourish. And new wine, the young women. When Jesus comes on a donkey... The kingdom is coming with him. World peace. The kingdom of Israel. The destruction and defeat of their enemies. The empire of Greece or the empire of Rome overthrown. Here comes Jesus riding on a donkey. So this is the arrival of the king. This is what they're waiting for. So what do they shout? Go back to Mark chapter 11. What do they shout in verse 9? It's a word there that we don't use every day here, but what is it? Hosanna. Now, Hosanna means, Lord, save us. It's from Psalm 118.25. It came to mean something like hallelujah, praise God. It just meant praise God after a while. But even then, like today would be Baruch Hashem. That's uh, what, that sounds like sneezing, right? But Baruch Hashem in, in Hebrew is bless the name. But it just means praise God or thank God. But it literally means bless the name. But you just say it as praise God. And, and so here, um, Hosanna means praise God, but it literally means Lord, save us. Praise the God who saves is what it might mean in this time. And what was Jesus' mission? 
to go and save his people, right? So here they are, king on a donkey, save us from Rome, save us. Hosanna. And then it says, blessed is he who comes in the what? In the name of the Lord. Now this is a quote from Psalm 118, 25 and 26. So let me read it to you. This is what it says, Psalm 118, 25. Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. So they're thinking Psalm 118. They, they read this during Passover time. When the Passover sacrifice was made and they were delivered from where? Being slaves where? Egypt. In Egypt. And now here comes the Lord and they're quoting Psalm 118. Here's the second Passover. Jesus is going to deliver us like, like they were delivered from Egypt. Now we're going to be delivered from Rome. This is it. Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118. He's the Messiah. Now, they were looking forward to salvation. Do we need salvation as well? Do people in the world today want salvation and need salvation? Yes. What do they want salvation from, though? From oppression to the government? Right? From taxes? You guys done with your taxes this year? Some of April 18th, last day, announcement, right? Make sure you get it in before April 18th. But we want salvation from taxes. Maybe salvation from misery, from crime. We want salvation from sickness, from deterioration and aging. You know, we, emotionally, we want salvation from unhappiness, don't we? Who wants to be unhappy? Some people are happy in their unhappiness. But their unhappiness, they want to be unhappy because that makes them happy. Ironically. But the point here is everyone wants to be happy. So save us from our misery. Save us from our unhappiness, God. Save us from the brokenness in this world. From death and decay. And here comes Jesus saying, I'm coming to save you. Look at verse 10. What is he bringing with him? The coming what? What's the word in verse 10 that's coming? What's coming in verse 10? The kingdom, right? The coming kingdom of our father David is blessed. So this is the kingdom of Israel. The the kingdom that we just read about in Isaiah 35 and Zechariah 9. It's the kingdom of Israel and it's the kingdom of David. David's son who would reign on the throne forever and ever. Let me give you two verses here. Just listen to the David part and I'll apply it. I'll apply this point and we'll move to point three. Isaiah 9, 7. This is right after unto us a child is born, a son is given. Isaiah 9, 7 says this. His dominion will be vast. And its prosperity will never end. Here's the kingdom. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So here's Jesus bringing in the forever eternal kingdom. That's what they were expecting. That's what Jesus came to bring. That's what the prophecy says. Jesus came to bring world peace. Jesus came to bring the perfect kingdom. So let me apply this now. If you're not a Christian, what is God saying to you? If you're not a believer yet, if you're not a Christian, what is God saying to you? Here's what he's saying. There's only one person who can fix your life and fix this world. It's not the Republicans. It's not the Democrats. It's not the pastors of your church. It's not. There's only one person who can do it. Who is that? Jesus. He's he's the only one who can fix this world. He's the only one who can fix your life. You won't become a Christian until you realize that your life needs fixing. But if you get that, if you get that, you're on your way. Realize that only Jesus can fix your life. Only He can solve your deepest and realest, truest problems. For the Christian, what does this mean for us? If, if we're going to recognize that Jesus came to bring the kingdom, 
his mission. That's what his mission is, to bring the kingdom. That's the answer here. Recognize his mission to bring the kingdom. If he came to do that, what does this mean for us? What should we look forward to? The second coming of Christ, Christ right? In Revelation 19, 11 through 16, it says that heaven will be opened. He, has, he wears a robe stained with blood. His name is the word of God. A sharp sword comes out of his mouth. He's going to strike the nations with it. The anger of God, the anger of God will, will um, or he will trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has the name written on his robe and on his thigh. King of kings and what? Lord of lords. The king is coming. If you're a Christian, you need to look forward to the coming kingdom. It says in Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. I saw the holy city, Jerusalem, new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. I heard a loud voice from the throne. God's dwelling is with humanity. He will live with them. They will be his people and God will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. That's the promise. Hope is real. Christ is coming. There will no longer be any curse, Revelation 22. The throne of God and of, and of the Lamb will be in the city and His slaves will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be written on their foreheads. Night will no longer exist and they won't need lamplight or sunlight because the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever. And ever. And so we sing hymns like hymn 517. Jerusalem, my happy home, when shall I come to thee? When shall my sorrows have an end? Thy joys, when shall I see? I want to go to heaven. I want Christ to come again. Amen. When, Lord, when will I see the coming kingdom? When will all of this pain and end and all the sin in my own heart, when will it end? And so we pray, Hosanna, blessed is the coming one. Or, like Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come. Or we say Maranatha, like all the saints, our Lord come. We need to let the reality of the future shape our present hope. If you knew, if you were on the Titanic, you guys know, if some of you might be younger, don't know that there's a big boat called the Titanic that sunk. Okay, um, It was a boat that they said would never sink, a ship that would never sink. Um, and so... Um, if you knew it was going to sink before it hit the glacier, would that change the way you spent... Like, let's say you knew three hours before that you were going to hit the glacier and that the, the boat was going to sink. Would that change the next three hours? You knowing that? Right. It would, right? If you knew that next month in your bank would be deposited a $5 billion inheritance from a, a, a dead relative that you didn't even know about, but you knew that it was coming next month, would that change how you live this month? Yeah. Why? Because you know the future. And when you know the future, it changes the present, right? Guess what? Here's the future. I'll tell you the future. Not a fortune teller, but I'll tell you the future. Jesus is coming. Amen. And he's bringing the kingdom. Amen. But does that inform our relationships today? Yes. Does it inform the way we're going to interact with each other as soon as we close in prayer and we, we greet one another? You know what it says in Hebrews 10.25? Um, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the what? The day drawing near. That changes the way you encourage each other Sunday to Sunday. There's an urgency because we know the future. Live like it now in the present. He's coming again. That's number two. So recognize Jesus' identity. He's the humble king. Recognize Jesus' mission. He's bringing in the kingdom. The final kingdom, if you like. And third... Recognize Jesus' method. 
Recognize Jesus' method. What is his method? We have one verse for it. It's the last verse of our, our text. Okay, so look at verse 11. So Jesus is entered. There's this frenzy. They're all excited. Verse 11 now. So he goes into Jerusalem and into the temple complex. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, where did he go? He went out to Bethany with the twelve. He went out to the city just outside. What's the significance of that verse? It's what didn't happen. When a royal figure visits a city, President Obama visiting Cuba, President goes to visit another city, what does the city do? They welcome him, right? They prepare a way for him. If he's going to stay over the night, they want to know where he's staying. They want to make sure he's okay. They're going to entertain him while he's in the city, right? That's what you do with a king. That's what you do with a president. Here's the king that they just celebrated going in. He looks around. All right. Goes back out. No, no, um, what do we do now? How do we take over? No, where are you staying tonight? No entertainment. No city officials at the, at the gate waiting for him. None of that. In other words, Jesus was not received. He was what? Rejected. Jesus was rejected. They did not prepare for him. Or as John the Baptist was supposed to do, prepare the way for the, of the Lord. They were not prepared in their hearts for Jesus. And it wasn't just the failure of the city. This is the failure even of the spiritual leaders of the city. The religious leaders. The religious ones. Why? They weren't there. They questioned Jesus, right? Why are you letting them shout these things? Now remember, Psalm 118 says, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, 26. I didn't finish the verse on purpose. Let me finish that verse. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, 26. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. What's the house of the Lord? The what? No, I mean in this time, at this point, in this story. The temple, right? And where are they going to bless him from? The temple. So he comes into the temple. Blessed are you. Come save us, the coming one. We will bless you from the house of the Lord. He enters into the house of the Lord. Did they bless him? No. They didn't. They didn't bless him. The priests didn't bless him. The spiritual leaders didn't bless him. He was not welcome as a king. And like I told you earlier, if you're not there for the king's coronation, that is considered treason. They rebelled against the king. So get this, brothers and sisters. Look up here. This last point. If, you're, uh, if you don't get anything, this is what the, the thing you need to get. Jesus' method of bringing in the kingdom was to be rejected. How was he going to bring that kingdom? How was he going to be that humble king? How was he going to humble himself? By getting rejected and suffering and ultimately dying on a cross for our sins. The way Jesus rules and reigns, the way he's going to bring in this kingdom with no more tears, was to have the most tears and even sweat drops of blood. The way he will bring in the perfect world is by suffering the most imperfect and horrible, sinful, evil crime in history. He will be rejected. The innocent one will be treated as guilty. The king will be treated as a criminal. The one who is the life will be killed. The one who deserves our honor and worship and adoration will be mocked. The one who should be received with gladness is ignored. And that's exactly the plan. That's how the kingdom comes. If Jesus doesn't come to die on the cross for our sins, there is no new heavens and new earth. Where do we go? Hell and the lake of fire. For how long? 
forever. There is no new heavens and new earth. There are no image bearers reigning with Jesus if he doesn't die for sins and rise from the dead. He has to die for the kingdom to come. The disciples didn't get it. Peter didn't get it. The crowd doesn't get it. Nobody gets it except Jesus. I came to get rejected. I came to be ignored. I came to die. So here's the gospel. What is the gospel? This is the gospel. That God made us in his image to enjoy him forever. And to reign with him as his image bearers. But we have rebelled against God in our sin. And therefore we deserve death because God is holy and righteous and just. But here's the good news. Jesus humbled himself. Became a man. Lived the life we should have lived. Humbled himself. Got on a donkey. Rode into town. Was rejected there on Sunday and rejected throughout the rest of the week. On Friday he's going to die on the cross. 9 a.m. he's hanging on the cross. At 12 p.m. pitch black darkness. By 3 p.m., he's dead. Right before he dies, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's rejected for our sins. And he's cut off and he says, It is finished. He accomplishes the mission. He bows his head and dies. Three days later, later, he rises from the dead in victory. And the kingdom is now secure. If you're not a Christian, here's what God is telling you. Turn from your sins. And not only that, just like these religious leaders, turn from your religion and trust in Jesus. See, these, the gospel is not, if you're not a Christian, let me just address you before we close. The gospel is not religiosity. The gospel is not religion. If you're not a Christian, you might think the way to become a Christian is to get religious. That's not true. That's not true. These religious people missed it. It's not even just reading your Bible and knowing biblical truth. Not even orthodoxy. What did Peter say? You are the Christ, the what? Son of the living God. And the next moment, Jesus calls him what? Satan. Satan. Why? Here's why. And you need to get this as we close. Recognizing Jesus is not just about right doctrine. It's about the right heart. And here's what I mean by that. I mean that you can't just get the right facts about Jesus. You need to turn from your religion. You need to turn from... I'll even say this to Christians who are Christians. I'll say this to myself as I'm saying this to you. PJ and church family here, you need to turn from the good works you've done that have actually been done by Christ in you. You need to turn from trusting those things as your identity and your joy. You need to stop boasting in yourself and what you've done. When you do that, you're not recognizing who? Jesus. You're recognizing yourself. And when you do that, you might actually miss Jesus even though you say you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, Jesus told Peter. You're setting your mind on the things of man. Because yes, you have the right doctrine, but you're trying to use me for your kingdom advancement. I'm coming to die. And Peter says, you're not going to die. Get behind me, Satan. This is not your agenda. This is not your agenda. I will bring in the kingdom, but I will do it by dying on the cross. My method. My mission. My kingdom. And so if you're going to recognize Jesus, you have to check your agenda at the door. And that means humility. That means repentance. For the Christians, what does this mean for us as Christian family? When we see this, what should we think? We should think what the song sang. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. My guilt upon his shoulders. 
His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. You need to own and embrace your own sinfulness if you're going to recognize Jesus. You can't make excuses for it. You can't pass it off. You can't hide behind your orthodoxy. You've got to say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Even as a Christian, I'm saying this to you Christians, you need to repent every day. We need to repent every day. That needs to be the mark of our lives. Brokenness over our sin more than the sins of others against us. And when you do that, you will recognize Jesus. And when you don't, you might have the right doctrine all the way down to a T. And you'll miss out on who Jesus is. As a church, how do we get off track? Here's how we're going to get off track as a church. We'll get off track if we assume we're okay with God. We might find out that our hearts are not prepared to invite Jesus when he comes in. How do we stay on track as a church? We stay humble and we keep repenting from our sins every day. We encourage each other to repent from sins. We confess our sins to one another. We confront each other and call out and correct each other on sins. And when we do that and we respond in repentance, we will recognize King Jesus. And when we excuse our sins and have defense reasons why we're not sinning, when we actually are, we will miss out on who Jesus is. And we don't want that. King Jesus has come, hasn't he? Isn't he here in our midst? Let's recognize him today by humbling ourselves, owning our sin, putting it at the cross, and rejoicing that he's our king. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would recognize Jesus, not just theologically, though we want to do that. He is God. He is man. He's the Messiah. He died and he rose. And that is central and foundational. And yet at the same time, you're calling us not to just say that. You're calling us to prove it or to believe it by repenting from our own sins. The religious leaders missed it. Peter missed it early on. And we confess, Lord, that we've missed it too often. So we just want to pause now and ask you to forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of our pride. Forgive us of looking at others and looking at their weaknesses compared with our strengths and feeling better about ourselves. Help us to boast in our weakness. For when we are, street, when we are weak, then Christ is strong. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're the king who came to save us. We thank you that you will one day come. And we know that because you did come and you did rise. And our hope is in you. Bless our church family and help us to recognize and enjoy your son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.